we lead the world in facing down a threat to decency and humanity. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss the eon of the Black Sun. Many people may have heard of the term the Black Sun before and seen the symbol and heard it talked about in many different contexts, including the context of what Nazi Germany was doing, because they're the ones that kind of popularized this symbol in the modern era. And there's a reason for that. This symbol's far older than Nazi Germany there, folks, I'm sure, as many of you are aware. And it has more connotations to it than just those negative ones that were tied to it because of the Nazi use of the symbol. Much like many of the other symbols in this world, they get hijacked by some of these dark occultists at the top of the power structure here and used in nefarious ways, and it brings kind of a bad vibe to the whole symbol and a bad intention behind the symbol but the symbol in and of itself is not wherein the problem lies it's the intention that's put into the symbol so with that being said we're going to explore some of the history of the symbology of the black sun see what exactly is it we're talking about here and how it relates to the times we're living in so tonight we'll be reading from a book titled Liber Nigri Solis, an Aeonic Astrochemical Grimoire of the Black Sun, edited by one Mr. Victor Voronov. And this is kind of a very interesting book. It touches on a lot of different of the mystical contexts of the Black Sun and some of the mysteries of the Black Sun and the initiations thereof of these various mysteries. So, to begin with, we're going to take a look at uh, part of the introduction of this book. And we're going to outline what exactly it is that is being talked about here. 
from the ground up so people could better understand this symbol that's been utilized in the world in so many negative ways when it's not necessarily a negative symbol. It represents something else. It represents something primordial. It represents the source of fire. And I think I've gone through this distinction before on this program with the teachings of the philosophies of fire, the philosophers of fire, excuse me, um, the, what they teach in their philosophy of fire is there's two different distinctions. There's the fire and the flame. One is the source of the heat, the actual fire. And this would be the equivalent of the black sun, the sun you don't see, the heat that you feel first or sense first. And then there's the flame, which is the actual light. So you have light and illumination. Same kind of allegory here. Light being the, the heat or the black sun and illumination being the actual physical light that you can see. So the unseen, the invisible, and the visible, the black sun being the invisible portion of the solar disk, as we call it sometimes here. So this is an interesting symbol. It uh, goes down a lot of philosophical pathways, looking at the different contexts in which it could be used. And we're just gonna start from scratch here in this book to give a vague outline as to what exactly is this symbol and how it's been adopted by many of these secret society groups, what it represents, and of course I will add my own opinions as to what's going on with it and how it's been leveraged in certain ways as we go through this. And you'll see it's an interesting topic to take a look at. So let's begin. What is the Black Sun and where does it get its power? its potential as an esoteric symbol. As we will see during the centuries, the black sun has been widely connected not only to that which, from our everyday point of view, is considered extremely negative, madness, torture, devastation, destruction, etc., but also to the strangely beautiful and ultimately divine. This, supported by the presence of the prefix un, un, suggests the point of departure to be that of the unfamiliar, which is often also uncanny, and that is of otherness. Otherness, he's speaking of otherness, the author of this book here. Otherness, O-T-H-E-R-N-E-S-S, -S, otherness. A distinction of being something out of the ordinary, otherness. The cultural origins of otherness can basically be divided into three categories. The first category is the linguistic as human language, and thus our conception of the world, is based on difference and oppositional pairs. Here is not there, or over there, I am not you, or he, she, black is not white, or red, or green, and so on. The relations are not contradictory in themselves, but they have values and symbolism attached to them. Thus, black is often conceived as the opposite of white, and to this are added culturally established associations, white with light, day, life, good, etc., and black with darkness, night, death, evil. What is especially interesting for us is the importance of negation, the dividing not. What is not us, or we, or that which is familiar and or belongs to us is other not us. It in not there is also a prohibition, and in some cases a taboo. Thou shalt not, and if you do, you will be punished or die, or some other terrible thing will happen to you. 
Which leads us to the next category, the anthropological. Where otherness can be equated with an anomaly, something or someone violating the normal order of things by, for example, being in the wrong place, doing wrong things, or just defying classification, anthropologist Mary Douglas famously calls it matter out of place. Soil is okay when in the garden, but when found on the kitchen table, it is dirt, thus not acceptable. It goes without saying that what constitutes this acceptance or normality is dependent on a cultural agreement and can as such be subject to change. However, there is a form of otherness that is ontologically in between, which makes it instinctively repulsive. This is, as Julia Kristeva has argued, the abject. It can be, for example, sticky substances, neither liquid nor solid, bodily fluids, is me but outside of my body, and the, tr the figure of the zombie, the vampire and the ghost, the undead. This lies close to the uncanny, which, as in Freud's famous exploration of the topic, is both familiar and unfamiliar at the same time. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So in otherness, the author here is speaking in some context as to that which is not us or me or I, the I am. You see, it's the distinction between the individual ego. You, you understand? The ontological self, the difference between you, and this is not you. This is something different. Or it's something that falls outside your normal experience. The uncanny, as it were. And that is both familiar and unfamiliar, as Freud said. So we have a, a base understanding of some of the idea of what otherness represents here. But that's in the anthropological sense. So, so far he's given us the linguistic sense, the anthropological sense. And next we're going to do the psychoanalytical category. So the psychoanalytical category, finally, is founded in how the infant's first experience of being physically and spiritually separated from its mother causes otherness to enter its world. Separation, loss, and trauma are, of course, concepts that not only being to psychoanalysis, but are important parts of our experience in the world around us. The black sun, as a concept, both as a visual symbol and as an abstraction, is in its essence connected to all three of these basic forms of otherness. They are often inter intertwined and influence each other, quite frequently in a way that adds a quality of, in Rudolf Otto's words, a mysterium tremendum et fascinans. A transcendent otherness before which man trembles and is fascinated at the same time, both repelled and attracted. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So he's describing something that actually falls under the category of what most people would consider the occult. It's something that both repels and attracts. It's something people are fascinated with, but also repulsed by, right? Same kind of a thing here. So the black sun is a symbol that represents this dichotomy of thought. It represents this kind of opposite pairing here. And remember how I've been telling you that uh, they teach in forms of paradoxes and in a sense the, the polarity principles on either end of the broad spectrum, steering it towards the center because that's exactly what they do, they teach in this polarized way, the duality principle that they bring into being, and duality is not actually 
the correct terminology for it, although it's been widely adopted by most much of the occultists and the secret society groups. That's how they describe things, being a dualism. But that's not the case. It's more polarity than dualism. But that's semantics and language, I guess, more than anything. But there are, in my mind, distinct differences between the two. So I think it's important to make that caveat here. But uh, aside from that, what we see is this teaching in the paradoxical way of things. This both repulsive and attractive thing. You see, that's what this symbol represents. Represents not only darkness, but also the light in a certain way. Not surprisingly, the black sun has often been used without any attempts of definition. It is as its presence in itself invokes a mystery that lies beyond the describable. This also makes it rather difficult to write something like a history of the idea of the black sun, as the concept somehow seems to fulfill its function already by its appearance. We also need to keep in mind the difference between references to the or a black sun. However, it is possible to detect how this idea has been used and from there draw some conclusions about its meaning in the different settings. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. And this is an important distinction here to make, where he says we need to make sure we are making the noticing the difference between the references to the black sun or a black sun. Because although there may be an astrological body called the black sun or a black sun, that would be a physical something or another, which is completely different from what the symbol the black sun is or the archetype of the black sun, the black sun. It's a different distinction. There's a mystical connotation involved. And although they may be related in some way, shape, or form, it's the image or the source of the image that's being compared in that contrast here. But anyway, let's continue on here and see what else we can garner here about this idea. One distinctive feature of the or a black sun is its logical connection to negativity. It is not the ordinary, profane, or as in this grimoire, vulgar sun, but its counterpart, either in a direct binary opposition or symbolically as an entirely other kind of sun. According to Ferdinand de Saussure's Influential Linguistics, the meaning of a sign is arbitrary, thus entirely culturally determined. And as the belief systems in a culture are constantly subject to at least potential revision and change over time, meanings change as well. However, logically, a negation always remains a negation. As we usually think about our sun, not merely as a, but the sun, the black sun is basically our sun's negative twin, or so to speak, the not sun. It can also be a not-sun, not necessarily connected to our sun. Both varieties carry a certain mysterious quality in themselves, but, and this is important, basically their potential comes from the use as a metaphor for something else. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. And this is of key importance. It's a metaphor for something else in its use as a symbol oftentimes, 
and especially as it relates to alchemy. They do this all the time in alchemy. They're not talking about what you think they're talking about in the plain language presented when you look at alchemical texts. They're not talking about literal mercury, this uh, liquid metal that they're mixing in a test tube. That's not what they're talking about when they're referring to mercury, folks. Same thing with sulfur. They're not referring to the yellow powder that smells like poop, right? So that's not what they're talking about when they're referring to sulfur in alchemy. And this is where a lot of people get lost and hung up on things because they were taught to think that this kind of stuff is silly and nonsensical. And this was early backward man trying to figure some things out and they were not really all that intelligent and they were superstitious and all of this stuff. We were taught to believe that this stuff is silly and nonsensical. It's not. Because that's not what they're talking about. See, they had a language that we don't understand in the current era. Unless you've gone through some type of training in this. And then, and only then, can you possibly maybe figure what's being talked about with their coded language. So when they're speaking about mercury and sulfur and salt, they're not th talking about the substances you think they are. It's the same thing with these symbols. It's not always what you think it is. So the black sun could be a metaphor, a representation for something else entirely that has nothing to do with the traditional symbol when you see it or when you hear it spoken of. So that's what the author is trying to get across here. And I think that's an important context to keep in mind when you're looking at a lot of this stuff. Because if you just pick up an alchemical grimoire or something like that and start reading, you're not going to be able to make heads or tails out of it. Even if you've been studying this stuff for a long time, you're still not going to make heads or tails out of it. Because you don't have the key, the cipher, to translate that language. And each and every alchemical type of a project or alchemical working is different. The symbols represent something different in them. And that is of the utmost importance to understand. So the mercury they're speaking of, it's not always going to be the same mercury in every alchemical working, you see. And this is where people get lost because it is kind of complicated and complex if you're not familiar with the metaphor involved with it, you see. The archetypes involved with it. So you're kind of at a loss to put two and two together with that with no training or context to work from so this coded language it's the same in the language of symbology you see the symbols don't always represent what you think they do or what you have been taught that they do or what even the secret societies tell you that they think that they mean doesn't always represent that you see so let's continue reading here and see what else we could garner from here keeping that in mind and as events, ideas, and political and social movements are heavily influential on contemporary artistic and intellectual creativity, thus formative of the zeitgeist of the epoch, what this something else actually is depends on its context. Therefore, it is quite necessary to adapt a phenomological attitude when trying to analyze cultural symbols, as they are always embedded in layers of meaning that need to be examined and peeled off in order to reach the innermost essence. going to pause for a moment here, folks. Couldn't agree more with the author of this book, as far as that context there goes. 
It is. It's important. You have to peel off the layers of meaning and understand the context in order to get to it. And he's referring here to the zeitgeist of the epoch. And I, I have gone on a little bit before about this idea of the zeitgeist of the epoch and this kind of thing. How it relates to this little something I, I like to call synchromystic metadata, because I think that's the best term to describe what this is. These are synchromystic tells that you can see out there in the world that relate to things going on in the form of symbols and just strange occurrences and synchronicities, all of these things that seem to align in just the perfect way for things to happen, especially as it pertains to agendas being put forward, you see. And I do think that there's some beyond human intelligence that either guides or steers or maneuvers things in certain ways to make things line up for things to happen like this. So with that being the case, it's an important context to keep in mind here when we're speaking of this kind of stuff. Anyway, let's continue on. The strikingly other nature of a solar eclipse seems to have fascinated mankind from archaic times on. The image of a black sun, a nocturnal sun, or a dark star is found in scriptures and myths from ancient Babylon, Egypt, and other cultures, and formed an important part of various cults, especially those in which death and rebirth are central mysteries often linked to or even identified as Saturn, this glyph has achieved an aura of the sinister, the chthonic, and the underworld, as well as having been associated with the great teacher and with time. The related notions of black fire or a dark flame also seem to be perennial. From antiquity onwards, the black sun in its different versions has been present among philosophers, mystics, and natural scientists in their contemplations on nature and the universe. Expounding her cosmology, Hildegard of Bingen, who lived from 1098 to 1179, talks about a dark fire, Ignis Niger, at the outer limits of the firmament. It is Ein Richtefuhrer, Binaha Ein Hollenfauer, a divine fire of judgment that has been interpreted as following ancient tradition rather than the theological idea of purgatory. Notably, Hildegard also symbolizes the fall of Lucifer by a black star. In Albrecht Dürer's famous engraving, Melancholia I, from 1514, Full with Saturnine and alchemical symbolism, the comet has in fact been interpreted as a black sun. Ominous phenomena like comets and solar eclipses are not the only such celestial mysteries to stir the imagination during the ages. The idea of a dark, invisible star whose energies are secretly influencing our planet, or even the entire universe, is recurrent in the context of astronomical speculations during the centuries, influencing authors of fiction as well as philosophers and esotericists. This mysterious object has sometimes been thought of as an invisible twin to our sun, sometimes as independent. 
According to the solar theory presented in Madame Blavatsky's The Secret Doctrine, our sun is only a reflection of the real sun behind it. A hidden sun which is the self-generating source of the life fluid, the vital electricity that feeds the whole system. The theme has attracted philosophers, mystics, and artists from time immemorial, all of them driven by a desire to explore that which is beyond, the ultimate source of everything. In Plato's famous allegory of the cave, the highest, most fundamental reality is constituted by the transcendent ideas, the sun metaphorically being their origin. Plato also uses the metaphor of the sun as the source of not only physical, but also intellectual illumination, a theme taken up by Augustine, who saw divine illumination as glimpses of eternal truth made intelligible to the human mind. Already in Plato, we find ideas related to the black sun through the concept of temporal blindness, of being blinded by the light. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Doesn't that ring a bell, blinded by the light? Revved up like a deuce? And that could be often misconstrued as something entirely different, but that's beside the point. Uh, but yes, did you ever wonder where some of these guys get their song lyrics from? <laughs> so I assure you it's not wrapped up like a douche. But uh, anyway, <laughs> that's beside the point. Um, so let me get start that over again here. Already in Plato, we find ideas related to the black sun through the concept of temporal blindness, of being blinded by the light before one can begin to see and understand things as they really are. Blindness is not only darkness, but is also, as shown by Michael Foucault in his classic study, History of Madness, traditionally associated with the night side of reality, the dream world, the irrational, mistakes, delirium, insanity. In his view, insanity is finally nothing, as it conjoins everything into something negative, without meaning, sight and blindness, hallucination and language, day and night, and so on. However, this nothing manifests itself in signs, words, gestures. It is meaningless disorder, chaos. But within such a person's experience, this is, in fact, not an unsound or alienated, but a blinded reason. It is night in shining daylight. Although Foucault does not present darkness, chaos, and nothingness as something in itself worthy of exploration... He does suggest poetry, literature, and art dealing with these topics as ways to gather knowledge about this world, a realm which is perhaps explored and expressed at its most grandiose by the romantics and the closely related idealist natural philosophy of the 18th and 19th centuries. Goethe, Novalis, Schelling, Blake, all of them use, if not the Black Sun itself, at least very similar concepts in their quest for the origin of all being. The primordial Urgrund. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So we explored some pretty heavy concepts through all of that. So we see these ideas here about the Black Sun as it relates to the theory of the cave, Plato's allegory of the cave, and going back into Madame Blavatsky's The Secret Doctrine, you know, the, the teachings of theosophy, 
all of these things, this secret doctrine which underlies all of these mystery schools and secret society groups, these occult organizations throughout the world, this secret doctrine teaches that the black sun is the real source of light behind our visible sun, which is a reflection of the black sun, a type of a lens which focuses the light and the emanations from the sun into this world. This is what they describe in the occult. Is this a true thing? It's really hard to pin down. What I can tell you is I do personally know that Crow 777 has filmed some strange anomalies in the sky, something that could possibly be a second sun, or the black sun, as it were, in the sky through his scope. And this still arises some controversy here today. We, we did a whole episode on it. Actually, it was episode number 150 over on Crow 777 Radio. An interesting conversation that we had about the whole thing. So is there something maybe that's detectable about this? Because he had to use a special telescope lens to film this. So it's interesting that perhaps he caught this anomaly on film. He still isn't completely sure what it was. But it's been repeated and filmed by others now as well. So there, there may be something to it. And it's not just the tech acting up. But uh, whether this is an actual physical thing or not remains to be seen. So is this a real physical phenomenon? Hard to say for sure. There may be some evidence as such. Because people have filmed strange things like that in the sky. The possibility of a second sun. Outside of the bounds of what we would call the firmament so to say, and this, this comes back to the whole cosmology we've been handed. Do we believe what we've been told by NASA? The only thing I know for sure is that they're lying to us about something, about the nature of space, about the nature of where we live. I don't know exactly what that is, nor can I, in all likelihood, possibly ever find out in my lifetime. Hard to say. Hard to say what's going on, but perception is reality. And if they can alter your perception of things to make you believe in some certain way of things, then everything you do will follow that model. And in a sense, it makes it a type of reality of sorts, doesn't it? If they could control your perception of what it is. And they seek to do that all the time, don't they? But at any rate, this is where the idea comes from of the black sun it's said to be either a separate body from our sun that we see in the sky or it's perhaps a negative reflection of it in some sense and it comes with spiritual contexts and everything attached to it as well so it's hard to say for sure because we really are in the dark figuratively and literally about where it is we live where we exist if anybody has actually gone to the reaches of outer space and has been able to accurately map where it is that we exist and what it is that our world truly is, they haven't shared with us everything that they know for certain. And the way they describe things is not accurate. 
by any way that we can measure here on our own. You have to kind of take their word for it. So it's the whole nature of, do we really know? Do we really know what's out there? Do we really know what's, what's even here? Where it is that we exist? And this whole idea is caught up in the expression here through symbology with things like the black sun, the symbol of the black sun. It has become a symbol. It has been a symbol from time immemorial. And it seems that ancient peoples knew something about a black sun in the sky, and some of them equated it back to Saturn. And they talk in these occult circles, these occult mystery schools and these organizations, these secret society groups, about an age, a golden age, in which Saturn was our sun. You see... So maybe it's hearkening back to something along those lines. And is it true? Or is it all misrepresentation? Or is it all metaphor? Hard to say. It's hard to say because we don't have a true glimpse at what our history actually is either. And that's what makes it so difficult. These secret society groups, they claim to have knowledge of some of these secret sciences and these secret histories that have gone on, and they relate these things to us, but we still have no way of verifying if what they're telling us is true either. So it's one of those things where either you have to take it on some degree of faith, or you have to try to remain as objective as possible, and just maybe admit to yourself, we don't know. And it's okay to not know. And it's okay to be curious as to what is true and what is not true. And that's kind of where we have to take a stance and look at the evidence that we could see and look at the evidence that we could find, the knowledge that's been handed down through generations within some of these secret groups. It's worth examining, folks. That's the whole thing. That's why I'm here doing this. It's worth looking at and considering is it true? That's another matter altogether. I don't know. I'm not going to claim to know. That's up to your own discernment to figure out, is what's being presented true or not? That's the bottom line here. So they present us information, and it is, it's information, and some of it can be useful, and a lot of it is leveraged in certain ways by people in this world. And this is the most important facet of all of it, and I always caution people about this. Whether you believe any of this stuff or not, what you need to understand is there are people in positions of power in this world that very much do believe this stuff. And the things they do to act on those beliefs will affect all of us. So it's important to understand what it is that motivates them. What do they believe? What do they act upon? What kind of tools or weapons do they use against us? You see, because there are some energetic principles that really do exist behind the scenes with a lot of this stuff that have been influenced in the past and are still being influenced today to affect human behavior on a massive scale. And they're doing it now, even more so than ever, manipulating the human mind with this secret science. And I assure you that's what it is. It's a hidden secret science that only some of the most highly regarded adepts know about and learned how to manipulate through the ages here. And they keep these secrets hidden in obfuscation within the secret schools 
because they don't even teach their lower level members the truth about it. They teach them lies first, and as they climb the degrees of initiation and take more and more blood oaths to protect these secrets, then maybe they're let in on a little bit more and a little bit more. And the truth of that information is also kind of sketchy as well, because they've been lied to at every level all the way down through. And then they tell the outsiders something completely different too, and that's you and I, the profane as they call us. They'll teach us something completely different as well. But like I said, I mean, it's information that's worthy of consideration and looking at, because I do think there are some kernels of truth mixed in as well. And I think many of the teachings from antiquity have been distorted and perverted in many ways and inverted and twisted to suit certain agendas today and certain power groups. And they've been completely twisted and turned around from what the natural science would have you do or have you be involved with. So that being the case, it's, it's worth looking at here and considering these things. Even if you think it's nonsense, understand what your enemy is doing. That's, that's the important part. But let's continue on. That's enough of my rambling. <laughs> the worldview of the early Romantics, especially as expressed in the philosophy of F.W.J. von Schelling, who was born in 1775 and lived 1854, is largely inspired by the mystical theology of Jacob Boma, as well as the rationalist ideas of Baruch Spinoza. Schelling identifies God, the supreme creator and ruler, not as separate from his creation, but one with nature itself. In this unity, including the divine essence, there is necessarily also duality, as everything is dependent on opposition and the tension and contradiction. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So once again, we see here, this is all the same stuff they teach through all these different secret society groups. They teach that nature and God are one and the same. The natural world is God. The Christian Bible teaches differently. God is not his creation. He is separate. Yes, his fingerprint is here. And his spirit manifests here. But he is not nature itself. Nature is his creation, you see. And that is where there's a distinction made, first and foremost here. So now they say that the creation itself is God. This is what they teach in the secret schools, that it's not something separate. But they also teach this idea of duality. And there's contradiction even in this teaching of their own. Let me read that again, and I'll explain that to you. Schelling identifies God, the supreme creator and ruler, not as separate from his creation, but one with nature itself. In this unity, including the divine essence, there is necessarily also duality. So I'm going to pause right there. So God and nature are one, but yet there's a duality. So would that may therefore not logically mean that there had to be two separate aspects here, if it's a duality? And that's where they, they get it wrong with the idea of polarity as I've expressed earlier. So he says here, there is necessarily also duality, as everything is dependent on opposition and the tension in contradiction, which, of course, is the polarity principle. And just because that exists within nature doesn't mean that God is dualistic 
or polarized. He exists outside and separate from this natural creation that he made. But this is what they teach, this is what they believe, and this is what all these philosophies kind of base themselves on, is this principle. In order to have being, there must first be nothing in which something can be created and in contrast to which being can be conceived as such. This implies freedom as a necessary condition for creation, and also that limitation and negation must be a stronger force than openness and affirmation. Otherwise, there would not be a creative force. As in order for creation to take place, the opposing state of negativity must be fought and conquered. This primordial force, Urkraft, is the essence of the highest, the divine essence the will and the essence of the will is love gonna pause for a second here folks so once again the will the force the force think star wars george lucas came up with that the idea of the force nope came directly from the secret schools folks so you see, it's all about this creative force, and they're saying that uh, in order for there to be creation, there has to be negation as well. And this duality, as they like to call it, has to exist. Because you see, in their cosmology that they've created here and put forward, they believe God and nature are one and the same thing, so he had to create this contradiction in himself. And therefore we have duality. Is that necessarily the case? I mean, I don't see why you couldn't accept the fact that perhaps there is a creator that exists outside and separate from this creation, and perhaps he interacts with the creation and can come and go within and throughout the creation as he sees fit. But to say that God is creation might be a misnomer, but this is exactly what they teach within these secret schools. And it's contradictory in and of itself. So, but anyway, he expresses the, the idea here at the end of that sentence that the essence of the will is love. And then he goes on saying here, there could be no affirming will without the negating will. The affirming will is the will of love. But on its own, love does not attain being. Being or existence is individuality in isolation, but love is the nothingness of individuality. It does not seek its own. For this reason, although love in itself is what is, it cannot be or exist as this on its own. Just as a being of beings could not be or exist without a force that opposes love, it likewise could not be the being of beings without a will that resists negation. This force is the white heat of purity, intensified to a fiery glare by the pool of nature. It is unapproachable, unbearable to all created things, an eternal wrath that tolerates nothing, fatally contracting, but for the resistance of love. And I'm going to pause for a moment here folks so you see here he's talking about there's a central truth to this love cannot exist without free will thus god gave us the gift of free will so we have choices 
And this is saying you can't have this type of free will without the ability to make a choice. So you can't have love without resistance to it. You can't have the affirmative without the negative, the negation of it, you see. So it's not entirely wrong in that teaching, but you see the way that they teach that uh, this force is the white heat of purity, intensified to a fiery glare by the pull of nature. It is unapproachable, unbearable to all created things, an eternal wrath that tolerates nothing, fatally contracting, but for the resistance of love. So they're kind of, in a sense here, claiming that the light or the white, the purity, that the purity is the destructive force, in a sense here, if you're reading that context into it, and it's necessary in order for there to be the concept of love. So, once again, we have this contradiction inherent here, the teaching in the paradox that the, the light is actually dark and the dark is actually light, you see. The inversion principle at play. And we know we're all affected by the, the common trope that the white, the guy, the cowboy in the white hat is the good guy and the one in the black hat's the bad guy. This is something that's been programmed in us, ingrained in us. Well, they've been trying to pull the inverse of that to be the accepted symbolism here. And that's why it makes it remarkably hard to read symbols. Is the black sun a negative symbol? Not in all of its uses. Is it a positive symbol? Also, once again, not in all of its uses. It all depends on the intention behind it. And it depends, has the inversion principle been applied to mislead people? As has been the case with these secret society groups, because I assure you folks, that's what they do. They mislead people. They lie. They manipulate. They push agendas. Many of them think they're doing good works. They think they're doing the right thing. But they've been taught the inverted principles... And they act upon the inverted principles, thinking they're doing good when they are doing bad. Woe to him who calls good evil and evil good. Doesn't the Bible say that? And that's exactly what they're doing. Oh, accept all of this weird stuff in the social culture as normal. Tolerance. You see how they frame this stuff? Tolerance. Acceptance. Many of these types of things... Things that violate the natural order. They want people to accept that under the, the banner of tolerance and acceptance and say that it's good. It's good. When the opposite is true. It's the inversion principle at play here. And we see that. And that's kind of invoked here as to what's become of this black sun symbol. But let's continue reading here. That's enough of my side trail there for a, a little bit. Let's continue on because there's still more I want to cover. Here are interesting connections to the much later writings of Ludwig Glages and his concept of cosmogonic eros, love being closely related to passion but not promiscuity. 
However, Schelling also seeks that which is above the highest, the ground in which creation can take place. This is the primordial immovable will that wills nothing. Just as the will that wills nothing is highest in man, so too in God himself. This very will is above God. We thus recognize the will that wills nothing as the expressing the eye of the eternal, unbeginning divinity itself, which can say of itself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So before we can enter onto the long dark way of the various times, we must endeavor to recognize that which in all time is above time. So now I'm going to pause for a moment here again, folks. So now they're claiming that God himself, this very will is above God. So the will is above God. They say here the force, if you want to substitute the word the force for the will. And that the will or the force is the eye of the eternal, unbeginning divinity itself, which can say of itself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So they claim that who we revere as God is not really the creator. You see, this is what they teach, this kind of stuff, that there was no creator, per se, that the universe just kind of always was here, primordial matter just existed as chaos, and it was the supreme architect of the universe, the great architect of the universe, who shaped and manifested things here, began to make things out of the primordial chaos that had already pre-existed. This is what they teach. This isn't what I'm, I believe. But this is what they teach about the nature of God and the nature of existence itself. So it's the primordial chaos idea and the order out of chaos as they teach in Masonry and various of the other secret groups. But let's continue on here. Schelling and his contemporaries in the Romantic Current shared the idea that in order for life to rejuvenate and to uphold being as such, there needs to be a continuous movement back and forth from the primordial source of first coming into existence. As man is part of nature, this is also true for all human beings. We all carry the potential to transgress the boundaries of time, for time, as we usually conceive it, is in fact not separating us from either the past or the future, and go back to that archaic before in order to reattach to the Urcroft and regain primordial knowledge. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Or go back to the future. Where do you think that came from? Anyway, let's continue on. The will, that Faustian desire, is a desire for wholeness, illumination, a search for the original source of being. We may also call it the Holy Grail, and simultaneously a quest for individual freedom. This is not an easy task. It has been said that only an exceptional individual can embark on such an exploration, or odyssey of the spirit, as Schelling liked to call it. This individual must be able to free his higher self from his subordinate self or to posit himself out of himself in order to allow for an even higher free inner contact to take place according to the different gradations of spiritual productions. 
In this endeavor, nature might be of assistance in that it can offer a demon, a genius, as a companion who can meditate between the eternal and its being. It is not difficult to see the parallels to another romantic quest, namely that for the Holy Grail. And to the elect knights guarding the Grail castle in Wolfram von Eschenbach's Parzifal. There is not not room enough here to go further into this highly interesting topic, but there are some themes that especially deserve to be mentioned. In von Eschenbach's version of the Grail legend, the skin of Ferifiz, Parsifal's elder half-brother born in the Orient as the son of the Moorish queen Balakane, is curiously a blend of dark and light, like a magpie. When the two brothers together reach the Grail Castle, Ferifiz, being a heathen, cannot see the Grail. However, after having been baptized, he is able to perceive it. In his analysis of the Grail legend, Julius Evola interprets this not as a reference to the Christian baptism, but rather to a real enlightenment, the water having here more or less the same meaning of the divine water, or of Hermeticism's philosophical water. He renounces the idea of the Grail as something essentially Christian, instead regarding the legend as a hyperborean mystery, in which the seat of the Grail is an initiatory center that retains the legacy of the primordial tradition, according to the undivided unity of the two dignities, namely the regal and the priestly. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. The regal and the priestly. The priestcraft and the statecraft. The church and the state. Let's, let's tell it like it is here. So let's continue on. And as we know, it is extremely difficult both to find the Grail Castle and to reach it. There are continuous tests, and in Evola's words, those who have experience in such matters know very well that similar adventures may also end in sickness, derangement, or death. Evola's connection to the Grail, of the Grail, to Hyperborea, becomes especially interesting in the context of the Black Sun, for example, when compared to the Iranian Sufi tradition, in which the concepts of Black Light and the Black Flame, as well as Green Light, are central themes in spiritual ascent. Here, the mystic orient is not the geographical one, but the spiritual, which is the heavenly pole of the north. And the light of the north, the midnight sun, the blaze of Aurora Borealis, is the threshold of the beyond. As Henry Corbin puts it, the reaching of the pole implies a break with the collective, a reunion with the transcendent dimension which puts each individual person on guard against the attractions of the collective, that is to say, against every impulse to make what is spiritual a social matter. In this light, I would suggest that the inherent elitism and references to tradition in Liber Nigri Solis are closer to a more open, inclusive attitude than to the rather limited exclusive model forwarded by Evola. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. Yeah, no, I don't think so, dude. <laughs> it, this is very much a book for somebody in the know, in the inner circles of these things. Somebody that uh, maybe, you know, has some connections to the power brokers of this world. Somebody interested in maybe gaining a position within 
the secret societies or some such thing that allots them some type of a, a presence in the new order of things that they plan on bringing about. That's my take. I think this is not written for the average person, but uh, that's beside the point. Let's go ahead and continue reading. Purity, strength, courage. These are not virtues held only by some elect, and certainly not only by white heterosexual males. They are necessary for the quest, but as they are intrinsically part of the primordial essence, they are also part of everyone. The individual just has to know that he or she wants to follow this path and to resist that part of the will wanting to avoid everything strenuous and demanding. In fact, the concept of tradition may be interpreted in different ways. Several of the Romantics, as well as the later Theosophists, based much of their thinking on secularism and what Jocelyn Godwin has called the Theosophical Enlightenment. This was an attempt to revive what is experienced as valuable in traditional Christian society in a secular setting in which the foundation is not provided by religion but by science, logic, and mathematics. In Novalis's words, quote, The world must be romanticized. This yields again its original meaning. Romanticizing is nothing else than a qualitative poten potentization. In this operation, the lower self becomes identified with a better self, just as we ourselves are a potential series of this kind. This operation is still entirely unknown. By giving the common a higher meaning, the everyday a mysterious semblance, the known the dignity of the unknown, the finite the appearance of the infinite, I romanticize it for what is higher, unknown, mystical, infinite, one uses the inverse operation. In this manner, it becomes logarithmicized. It receives a common expression. End quote. A couple important ideas to explore in that quote. So, first of all, this idea that they use the inversion operation here, instead of trying to describe or experience this unknown idea, this mystery. They attempt to define it clearly. And this goes for the initiation process as, as well. This is what the secret society groups do. They try to latch on to this thing that is indescribable. It's, it's something that's purely experiential. And it differs from person to person. It's, it's a personal thing. It's an entirely personal experiential thing. And they tried to take this and quantify it. And that's exactly what they've done. And in so doing, it gives it an inverse operation. So they try to make this mystery, this unseen, unmanifest thing, into something manifest here that we could relate to in this physical world. They try to make it into a, a materialized counterpart here in this world. They try to quantify it and control it because that's what you do when you quantify something. The reason for quantifying a thing that is usually unquantifiable is for the purpose of trying to control that thing. So they want to control the mystical experience of people. That's what these secret society groups have done. And this author that he was quoting here, Novalis, also says that in this manner it becomes logarithmicized. It receives a common expression. An algorithm, folks. 
What do you think the initiation ceremonies and stuff of these secret society groups are based on? It's all an algorithm. It's the same program for everybody. Right? In the natural world, initiation would be different for each and every person. In this controlled form of mysticism of these secret society groups and these occult fraternities that claim ownership of this unjustly, they use these same exact initiation template for everybody that goes through their doors, and they call it the initiation process, and they claim you must go through this in order to receive enlightenment, and it's all false. It's all false. It's a, an artificial initiation, you see. It's not the true experience of the mystical or of the mystery as was understood by many of the ancient peoples in the, the old natural world wasn't a big secret held by the priestcraft in the very beginning phases of the world but certain individuals learned certain things and decided to keep those things to themselves. And they hid those ideas from others and learned how to manipulate others with it. And that's wherein the priestcraft was born. That's wherein these ancient mystery schools were born and their teachers. They only handed down the teachings to select few individuals. And they hid it from the rest of the world by disguising it as something in an exoteric form. And it was an esoteric teaching. It was a symbol. A symbol that represented something else. But the, the people, the outsiders, didn't know that the symbol was a symbol, you see. So in this way, they kept knowledge hidden. And manifest it moving forward through the ages here. And created this divide in our societies and cultures. The ruling class and the ruled class. That's what happened here. And today it continues the same way. Just looks a little different from how you would picture it in ancient times or older times. But uh, let's continue reading here because there's still a, a bit I want to cover before we sign off. In essence, the operation of moving backwards and inwards into oneself, which is also backwards in time in order to find the essential, the core of being, echoes much of the later methodology of the phenomologists, for example, but also late 20th century post-structuralist thinkers such as Derrida and Foucault. Slavoj Zizek, an avid admirer of Schelling's who combines him, with a Lacanian psychoanalytical perspective, shows how Schelling's ideas are in fact forerunners of today's postmodern deconstruction of logocentrism. This means, in short, that Schelling goes beyond language and words, beyond the biblical logos, the word of God, that was supposedly the original act of creation, in order to find a primordial, pre-symbolic, Urgrund, something that is not God, and thereby made God's first act. The utterance of the Logos possible. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So you see, these people are searching to try to figure out, is there a way to perhaps 
gain power over God himself. They're looking for something that is not God, that made possible the first act of God, the utterance of the Logos, the Word, the speaking into existence of this creation. And there's a logical fallacy in this idea. They're looking for the not God that made this possible. Well, they're assuming, they're assuming that there had to be a not God in order for God to create the creation. That's a logical fallacy. If this is God, the divine creator of everything that exists outside of and separate from this creation, what makes you think that there has to be something beyond him that that created God, per se, or allowed God's existence in the first place. That's a logical fallacy. And to be fair, we don't honestly know. We don't really know how, when, or why all of this came into existence, this continuum that was spoken into existence through the Logos, the Word of God, they acknowledge this here, but they're looking for the not-God, you see. They're looking for this diametric opposite of God. They're assuming that because our, the creation we live in, this natural world we live in, operates on this polarity system, that God has to operate the same way. It's a logical fallacy. There's no knowing for sure if that's the case. Once again, it's the, this idea they've taken the, the polarized nature of things, how things manifest here in this world, and they made the assumption that it's the same with God. Because, you see, they've equated God with the creation. And that's where in this paradigm becomes a little bit confusing and convoluted, doesn't it? So they think that the creation itself is a part of God, that God is creation. And acting upon that belief, they think then, of course, that there has to be something that exists outside of this creation that made it possible. So you see what they're doing. They're trying to <laughs> equate God with what they're calling not God here, right? So <laughs> that's the whole point here. God is the not God they're looking for, but they're they're looking at it from the wrong perspective, you see. And this is the whole problem. So they're they're trying to seek a way to leverage some type of power over the creation here. And I think that's at the end of the day what it's all about. So they're looking for this ultimate existence of the chaos, right? The primordial chaos through which all things were brought into manifestation in their belief system. And this is the thing. It doesn't align with much of what Western thought has been for the past 2,000 years. And, and this is wherein it gets a little confusing because this is what they teach in the secret schools, the secret society groups. They don't see there as being a creator God. They see this as being a force that just manifests and that anything that we call God is a lesser being, a lesser creative being, that may shape and form things, make some order out of the chaos, 
This is why they deify Lucifer in the secret society groups, primarily Freemasonry. And this is just one name given to this deity that they, they give credit to and that they think is the god of this place. And they don't acknowledge him as creator of all things, of this creation. They see him as being one and the same with this creation. And that's a logical fallacy. And now they're looking for not God. <laughs> because they, they can't see the forest for the trees in this context. But that's enough of me babbling on about that. But I just wanted to try to explain my position on this statement as he's making it here. But let's read on. The main thing is that the idea of a negation opens up total unity for a space of freedom in which something new can come into existence. In fact, rather like the concept of Zimsum in Lurianic Kabbalah used for explaining the original process of creation, in mythical language, this primordial flash of the first being can be seen as the well of life. One fundamental idea in this current was that new life is found in the most archaic, in that which is in part primordial unconsciousness. And this can only be sought and found in nature, and in myths that recount the mysteries of life, death, and creation. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. Notice, he harkens back to the mysteries of life, death, and creation, and the myths that recount that. And this can only be found and sought in nature. But yet, uh, you know, these secret society groups, they, they try to seek it out in their own artificial way, don't they? You see the contradiction in what they do, and they don't see it. They don't see it as contradictory, but it is, if you step back and look at it logically from outside. And like I said, a lot of people that get involved primarily with Masonry and some of these other secret society groups, they're just curious. They want to know some things. They want a sense of belonging. They think they're doing good works and that there's nothing wrong with that. And most of them don't get past the level of what's called the Blue Lodge in Freemasonry or what the higher level occultists within the Freemasonic groups call the Porch Masons. Most of them don't get beyond that and don't see any anything beyond this the regular humdrum everyday world going on here. They don't see any of the mystical ties or connotations. They think it's just some quaint tradition that they belong to and they do good works and they'll get a square deal down at the car dealership and this kind of thing. And that's why they join it. Gives them social status down at the country club and they all vote along the same lines with their Masonic buddies and stuff like that. And they belong to the group. And if they're in trouble, they could call up their Masonic friend and they'll come bail them out. And that's what this is, largely, for most people. They don't have any ill will or intent in the thing, and they don't understand what goes on on the higher levels of these secret society groups. And if you tell them, they still don't believe you. No, I'm amazed, and they'll tell you. That's all nonsense. Oh, is it? Well, well, here's a book written by a high-level mason that tells all about it. Well, that can't be true, or they'd have told me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> At any rate, um, that that's the whole nature of all this. So they, they look back at the mythical archetypes, and they look at nature to understand some things, 
and they've come up with their own artificial system which is supposed to be a representation of this that they put their own pupils and initiates through and they call this enlightenment you see let's continue reading though the familiar tropes of entering darkness, descending the abyss, or plunging into the underworld, and the preoccupation with ancient myths, dreams, and mystical contemplation are not necessarily just meaningless expressions of the irrational mind going astray from enlightened critical thinking. There is certainly a lot of well-justified criticism concerning the often undisputed role of myths and archetypes as expressions of a pure, archaic mode of thought. Iliad, for example, has been accused of mythologizing myth itself, thereby not questioning the basis for his theorizing. But as Zizek convincingly has shown, this is not the only way of interpreting Schelling's philosophy. And while this is not said by Zizek, if we follow Schelling's model and the discourse in this grimoire, the supposedly irrational current of thinking would in today's society be fed by great amounts of power directly derived from the experience of oppression. Although partly veiled in mystical language and obscurity, it is exactly through Liber Nigri Solus, powerfully defying nature, that some readers may summon and utilize the counterforce necessary to ignite a process for great spiritual creativity. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. And now, this author shows his true colors. Let me read that again. Although partly veiled in mystical language and obscurity, it is exactly through Liber Nigri Solus's powerfully defying nature that some readers may summon and utilize the counterforce necessary to ignite a process of great spiritual creativity. Bringing together elements from different traditions, dealing with the black sun in its different guises, this grimoire forms a coherent and unique whole that through its constant emphasis on the Antimonium taps into an abundant source of social energy. All right, folks. And we're going to drop it right there tonight. So what did I just read here? What is the author's purpose for writing this book? He just told you. It's exactly through this book's powerfully defying nature that some readers may summon and utilize the counterforce, as he calls it, necessary to ignite a process of great spiritual creativity. So he's going against nature, the inversion of the natural order, you see, directly in opposition to the natural order. This is a violation of natural law. God's law, the creation's law, even in their own words, they see the creator, God, as being the creation itself. And now they want to violate natural law. Violating the creator, in their view. That's exactly what he's talking about. Utilizing what he calls the counterforce here. The negation. The inversion principle. You see. Do you see how they twist and pervert a lot of these things? And he's talking about bringing together the elements from different traditions and dealing with this symbol of the black sun, the metaphor that is the black sun. And as we read through this, I mean, we went down a lot of different trails here. 
But are you any closer to really understanding what the black sun represents? Well, it represents the inversion principle, folks. It's a reflection. Now, in some of the, the teachings from the philosophers of fire, it represents the origin, divine origin. You see, the black sun represents the heat, the substance thereof, the fire, the spirit. It's the source of spirit, the black sun. Now, the visible sun, or the light sun, the sun that you see, the visible one, not the invisible sun, which is the black sun, this would be equivalent to the flame, the light. The fire is the light, so the black sun is the light. The flame, or the visible sun, is the illumination, or the flame. It's the attribute, and the, the visible light from the visible sun you're talking the concepts of light and illumination. Light would be the actual substance that we know as light that creates all things. And illumination would be the radiance of this light from the sun, the visible portion. We don't see light, we see illumination. It's the same thing with fire. We don't see the fire, we see the flame. It's the visible and the invisible. It's the consubstantiation of the visible world with the invisible world. That's what the black sun represents. It's the source of emanation into the physical realm here. That's how it's been used as a symbol. That's how it's been represented. And there have been a lot of different connotations attached to it. And you have some of these cults and some of these secret society groups and some of these occult fraternities that have latched on to this symbol and they've turned it into the antithesis of the natural order of things. They want to turn it into the inverse, the inversion principle. They've adopted this symbol. This is what happened in Nazi Germany, too. They, they think they're doing the great work in this, in using this symbol. They think it's man's divine destiny to become the gods of this place to take control, to invert the natural order. Because does it not say in the Bible that God gave us dominion over all things in this place? But dominion and inversion are two different things. And they've taken it to a far extreme. They think it's man's destiny to tame nature. And by tame nature, they mean completely invert nature, turn it into something completely artificial and man-made, becoming, therefore, the new creators of their own reality, and therefore becoming the gods of that place, of that creation. So that's essentially what's going on at the crux of all this. And the black sun has become a symbol that's been hijacked, by some of these folks and we see why there's negative connotation attached to it and it wasn't intended that way because there's some very profound philosophies attached to that idea the philosophy of fire it's the same way with that now i think there are some good people that get involved in some of these secret society groups and i think there are some good people out there practicing some of these things but these are largely not organized the way that those that are working for the dark side, so to say, are organized in this world and have been elevated to a place of power, a position of authority here. 
and are pushing their agendas on us. But it's still important for us to understand what are their motives, what are their beliefs, what is it they think, what are they doing and acting on. And stuff like this, books like this, give you a little glimpse into the things that they think that they know. And it's all about creating this inversion principle, inverting the natural order, making the creation a completely unnatural thing that they are the new creators of, the new gods of, the new architects of. You see, it's all about the usurpation of the creator. And this was the lofty goal that was attempted, I should say, by Nimrod in the book of Genesis, the Tower of Babel. Look how that ended. Well, this is the same thing. We're in for another Tower of Babel moment here, folks. Because these people see themselves as being very close to what it is they want to achieve with inverting the entire natural order and making themselves the gods of this place. That's what they want. That's what they're seeking to do, and they see this as what they call their great work. Or their philosopher's stone. And all of it leads invariably to a little philosophy in the modern era called transhumanism. Remember that word, folks. Transhumanism. It's the culmination of all of these mysteries as controlled and contorted by the secret society groups today, by these ancient mystery schools, by these dark occultists who run things in this world. They see this as being their great work, the achievement of their great work, the achievement of the Philosopher's Stone, of immortality, of godhood. They see this being something that can possibly manifest in our lifetime, through the use of high technologies and a little philosophy called transhumanism, the post-human world, that's what they seek to create. It's all based upon a culture of death, death-related ideas, things like corporation. What's the root word of corporation? Corpse, the dead entity. We're living through what's called by Michael Hoffman the reign of dead matter. And that's what transhumanism is, the ultimate culmination thereof, the reign of dead matter. All these ideas all t tend to move towards this same philosophy, this same end point, this goal that they have, this transhumanist ideal, this utopian or dystopian society, depending upon what side of the, <laughs> what side of the screen you're standing on, I guess. So that being the case... This is what they're working towards. And even if they do manage to maintain some kind of success, I assure you it will be very short-lived because God is not mocked and nature always self-corrects. So it will end and collapse catastrophically as did the Tower of Babel, even if it does manage to succeed for a short time. Rest assured, we know how it ends. We know how it ends. You could look back at the Tower of Babel story as an example thereof. Same old New World Order, like I always say. That's exactly what they're looking for. Anyway, this was an interesting exposition into the 
symbolical nature of the symbol of the black sun and the various things associated with it. And you can see how the symbol's been used, how it's been hijacked, what it has represented in the past, and how it represents this other nebulous thing that this guy calls otherness, the idea of something extant from yourself, the negation of God. That's, that's what they've hijacked it to mean in this guy's case, the negation of God, the not God. So... And that being the case, we, we could understand something a little better now. If you see that black sun symbol out there, and you know where it comes from, you could know, perhaps, the, the whole motivation behind it. You could know the context in which it's being used. You could know the intention. Because in order to accurately interpret a symbol, you must know the intent and the context in which it's being used. And if you have only one and not the other, you're getting an incomplete picture, but you can have a better idea nonetheless. But at the same time, if you have neither, you may be making a wild stab in the dark as to the interpretation of a symbol. So when you see the black sun being used out there, look at who's using it. First of all, where is it coming from? What's the context in which it's being used? That's the other thing. So there's a lot of this stuff, and this applies to just about any symbol that these secret groups have hijacked for themselves. And you could know a little something more through applying that kind of a logical technique. First of all, look at the context it's being used for. Secondly, look at who's the source. And if you know the source, you could have a pretty good idea as to what the intent is. And if you know the context and intent, then you could probably make a pretty good guess as to what's being conveyed by the symbol. It's the same with this. And now we've read this guy's statements here, and we know what his view of the black sun symbol is, what it represents to him and his ilk. I'm not sure what kind of a group he belongs to, but it sounds like it's of the theosophical type of mindset, in my view, from what I've seen. So, that being the case, eh, all these different teachings, are, they're the same throughout all the different groups. They just call them by different names many times. And that's it. So, understand it's all the same core teachings, though. Throughout all of them. They all come from the same ancient roots in the mystery schools. And the further you go back, the better you could understand what, perhaps, the original intention was and perhaps what the original meanings were, and how they've been distorted through the years. But that takes a great deal of reading and study, and looking at these things from many angles, and many sources, in order to make that kind of a call, that kind of discernment as to what's what with it. Because many of these teachings do have some valuable information in them, and they do have truths interspersed throughout, but there's always that bit of poison and oftentimes that poison is the intention, the intent of the author giving you the information, as we've seen in this reading here tonight. So, with that being the case, I hope you found value in tonight's reading. I certainly did. I always find value in these things. There's always certain fragments of truth that can be found and value that can be garnered through this stuff. And it also gives you the practice of trying to discern intent from the writer of certain things. Being able to discern for yourself what's true and what's false within 
the confines of something. Anyway, folks, that's all I've got for tonight. I want to thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now. Come with me.
what can be. 